Well, good morning, and thanks for being here this morning and for lifting me up in prayers. I prepared to teach on these eight verses that Michael read earlier. Have you enjoyed the book of Mark so far? Yes. We're, we're about halfway through, and I trust the study of this gospel has been as beneficiary for each one of you as it has been for the elders as we've had opportunity to teach. By way of introduction this morning, I want you to think of your favorite board game. Now most people, and I would assume most of you all, like to play board games. And a lot of these games have been around for a very long time. In fact, the first, the very first game that Milton Bradley made, and Milton Bradley is kind of a famous maker of board games, their first game was created in 1860, and it was called the Checkered Game of Life. It was basically a modified checkerboard with the purpose of earning points by landing on the so-called good squares as each player moved from infancy or birth to a happy old age. In essence, the goal was that by the end of the game, you'd reached old age and you'd be able to reside in what they called millionaire estates. I've never actually played that game, but reading about it may be considered that for many people, that same philosophy permeates their worldview thinking, such that in order to be a winner in life, a person must accomplish the prestigious things that this game sets forth. Society may tell us that winners are people with status and clout. Winners are people with money. Winners are people who are successful. Winners are people who are happy because of their achievements. And like the board game, winners are the ones who at the end of their life end up residing in millionaire estates. Sadly, and I hopefully you realize this, board games are not reality. While the decisions and choices we can make do and have consequences for us and for those around us, the winners in this life are not those with the temporal things found in money and fame and success, but rather those eternal things that come from a saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the most part, what we hear all around us in this world is quite the opposite of what Christ would preach in the Bible commands. The world says one thing, God's word says the opposite. And there's actually a word that describes these polar differences, and that word is paradox. What exactly is a paradox? The simplest definition I could give you would be like this. A paradox can be defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement, yet when investigated and explained in detail, proves to be well-founded and, in fact, absolutely true. So you may be thinking to yourself, why is he talking about paradoxes? Well, today's account here in Mark is one of those teachings expressed in a paradox. Now, for many, a paradox in the scriptures present a problem, maybe leaving a stumbling block, for the truths presented seem so contrary to what we would comprehend in our human minds. Yet when thought through and fully understand, understood in light of God and his sovereignty, it makes perfect sense. Let me give you just a few paradoxes that's found in the scriptures so you can grasp the concept a little better. Give 
and it shall be given unto you from Luke 6. But if I give it, how will I still have it? The last shall be first. Matthew 19. How can that be? If I'm last in line, how can I be first? We are in the world, but not of the world, from John 17. You mean I'm living here in this world, but I'm really not? Humble yourselves, and he shall lift you up, from James 4. That just doesn't make sense. He that loses his life shall find it. Well, that's, that's just impossible. How can I lose my life and then somehow find it? When I am weak, then I am strong. Wasn't well, it better to be strong? I don't want to be weak. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations from James 1. How can I possibly be joyful when I'm going through these terrible trials? Being made free from sin, you become servants of righteousness, from Romans 6. Well, if I'm free, why would I want to be a servant? Whoever will be great, let him be your servant. Again, isn't it better to be a leader than a servant? And then the account we find here in Mark today, verses 34 and 35. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Denying myself, taking up the cross, losing my life and following Christ to save it? This is the paradox we'll be looking at today, and certainly as we consider paradoxes, the cross of Christ has to be one of the greatest paradoxes of all. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it in detail, but Christ on the cross was the most tragic event in the history of the world, yet the most wonderful thing that ever happened. It was the saddest spectacle man ever beheld, yet it was the most stunning defeat Satan ever suffered. And it was the most glorious victory Christ ever won. Christ actually conquered by surrendering. It was at the cross we see human vengeance crying out for Christ's blood, yet we also see divine forgiveness as Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So with these introductory comments, the message for today is the paradox of the cross. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, thank you for this teaching from Christ here this morning. Lord, these paradoxes are sometimes difficult to understand. They go so contrary to what our human thinking would tell us. And yet, Lord, they're the truth. The cross is the truth. The death of Christ is the truth. His resurrection from the grave is the truth. So Lord, help us to understand this passage. I just pray that you would really give me uh, the words, the truth to speak to those that are here today. So thank you again. In Christ's name, amen. I actually broke this passage up into four sections. 
And so the first one's a short section starting with verses 31 and 32a. So follow along as I read. Mark 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. I called this first section the price of the cross. If you remember from Kent's teaching last week, after giving sight to the blind man, Christ asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? To which Peter responded, thou art the Christ. It is at this point in verse 31 that we begin to see a transition towards the final phase of the disciples' training. This is where the cross will be introduced and the price that Christ would pay on that cross as part of God's sovereign plan of salvation. Now note here in verse 31 some of the specific things that Christ begins to share with his disciples concerning his death. First, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Suffer? Christ would suffer? The disciples were surely asking among themselves, how can this be? My Bible says in the footnotes, in Jewish thought of that day, there was no room for a doctrine of a suffering Messiah. Or as one commentator said, a suffering Messiah? Unthinkable. The Messiah was a symbol of strength, not weakness. Yet Isaiah 53.5 prophesied in detail, <clears throat> but he was wounded or pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Secondly, the Son of Man will be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Another commentator shares this, this in regards to what the disciples were thinking. If Christ is indeed the Son of God, as the disciples believed he was, why would he be rejected by the religious leaders? Why would these leaders kill him? Did not the Old Testament scriptures promise that the Messiah would defeat all their enemies and establish a glorious kingdom for Israel? Again, Isaiah 53, this time verse 3. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows unacquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Thirdly, the Son of Man would be killed and after three days rise again. Whereas the disciples, the people expected the Messiah to mount a campaign and take Jerusalem by any means necessary, Christ told of a completely different price to glory. He would not be carried to power in the upward momentum of a populist movement, but his path led him downward. Downward through suffering and death. Again, Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. He hath put him to grief. And then fourthly, the Son of Man spoke this word openly. This would have been an unbelievable shock to everyone listening. And so in shock were the disciples that it appears that the idea that Christ will be raised from the dead after three days totally escapes any notice probably due to their focus being totally absorbed in him being killed. As I considered Christ foretelling his death, I thought how it could be compared to an American presidential candidate speaking at a campaign rally. And at the end of the speech, the candidate announced that upon election, his plan was to go to Washington, D.C., and there be rejected 
and killed. If we heard these words, we too would just be shocked. And so no doubt, in the minds of these disciples, something was wrong. And the confusion of this paradox weighed deeply upon them. I thought, likewise, for those of you outside of Christ, you may be confused as well. For all the ways seemingly possible or available to bring us into relationship with God, why the price of Christ having to die on the cross? I think Luke 24, verses 45 through 47 answers this question very well. Then he opened, he, Christ, their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in the name of among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There's a phrase there, and I underlined it. It behooved Christ to suffer. Behooved means it is necessary or a necessity. It's a duty or responsibility. Why was the suffering and death of Christ a necessity? Many today will hear, they'll read, they may even watch a movie about Christ and his suffering and death on the cross and never really understand or be fully convinced of the necessity of the cross. Yet it was a necessity. As I thought through it, it was a necessity because of, as I personally, my wickedness, your wickedness, my iniquity, your iniquity, my transgressions, your transgressions, my sin, your sin all of which had to be nailed to Jesus Christ on the cross. This was the reason Christ had to suffer and die. It was to take away the tragic penalty for all these sins once and for all. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. That's where we were without Christ dying on the cross. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I trust you who know the Lord really see that and believe it and praise God for that price that Christ paid. The next section is verse 32b and 33. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. I call this section the purpose of the cross. Not surprisingly, it was Peter, acting as the Lord's unofficial campaign advisor, who pulled Christ aside to rebuke his negative words. The verb here, rebuke, in the Greek is etimitia, epitamayo. And it's the same term Christ used to silence a demonized man earlier in chapter 1, to calm a raging storm in chapter 4, and to warn his disciples not to tell anyone of his identity in chapter 8. It means a severe censure or an authoritative order. Humanly speaking, you might think Peter was correct in this rebuke, but you must also remember who he was rebuking and wrongfully concluding he had authority over Christ. 
In essence, what Peter said was in complete disobedience to the spiritual authority over him. For Christ did not come to conform to man's plans, but to carry out his heavenly fathers. It appears that Peter did not speak too many words in this rebuke before Christ, while looking at all of his disciples, brought his student back in line with his heavenly agenda by saying aloud, Get thee behind me, Satan. It was Christ who now issued his own stern rebuke, for he knew there was a satanic attack trying to discourage him from his purpose on the cross, and he would not allow that attack to succeed. Christ continues on in verse 33 by telling Peter that he was not saving, or he was not mindful of the things that be of God, but rather the things that be of men. In other words, if you don't follow my plan, you have adopted Satan's. There is no compromise or middle ground. Most commentators agree that Peter didn't make a deliberate choice to reject God and embrace Satan. He rather let his mind settle on the things of men instead of the things of God. He rebuked Christ simply because he couldn't handle a suffering Savior. He just couldn't see the purpose of the cross. I like how one commentator summarized this section. Peter is a perfect example of how a sincere heart, coupled with man's thinking, can often lead to disaster. Peter is a perfect example of how a sincere heart, coupled with man's thinking, can often lead to disaster. As I thought about that, I just want to share a few thoughts on how man's thinking can and often does lead to disaster. Even personalizing this a bit and reflecting on my own life, I'm reminded of how often I've spoken words in the past by way of counsel or direction to help an individual, thinking this, this is what God would want me to say. But the reality is I thought back. I wondered how many times could it be that they were simply, my words were simply man's thinking acquired from the world all around me. It's been said, everyone has an opinion. And even though you may not be the, quote, outspoken type of personality that overwhelms any discussion or conversation, or you could be thinking that you're really basically neutral when it comes to most things, I would say you do have an opinion whether you express it or not. The question I would ask you this morning is, how do you know that your opinion, your advice, your counsel, your words are biblically correct? Or your words may be sincere, but are they biblically correct? I think the answer to that question really comes down to where do you, where do I, put our time and energy? What is our priority in life? Do we spend more time thinking and our efforts go towards the things of the flesh? Or do we spend more time and effort in God's word and prayer and the application of it in our lives? Romans 8.5 For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Psalms 119.24, Thy testimonies 
God's word residing in me are my delight and they're my counselors. So do you savor the things of God or the things of men? Young people, let me ask or address you just for a second. I just turned 68 and um, I became a, a believer at age 20. Over my lifetime, I have seen many young men and young women who early in their lives seemingly loved the Lord. They were following him. At least they said they were, and I could observe them. They professed to know Christ. They were, were baptized. They were memorizing the scripture, involved in the church. And then there's a certain age that they go off to college, get a job, develop friendships, maybe some not so good, or just get plain busy with all the activities of life. And over time, their, their faith begins to wane, such that the spirit no longer presses for the things of the spirit, but the flesh becomes a pre- predominant pursuit. Involvement in a church body becomes rather dormant. And then sadly, at some point, Christ is no longer a part of their life. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's taken over a center stage. As I've observed these individuals, it's pretty hard. And it's especially hard for the parents. I would tell you the temptations of the world are all around us. And Satan would love nothing more than to devour us. And humanly speaking, we may think we can, we can mix the flesh and the spirit together and please both. But we can't. For no one can please two masters. This too is what I call a paradox. Where we have two separate and distinct roads each end in total opposite destinations. So, which road are you on? Are you staying the course? Are you keeping Christ and the cross at the forefront of your minds and priorities? Or, are you waning? Are you pursuing the flesh, striving to really just please yourself? Maybe even trying to to win that board game and end up in millionaire estates. Jesus told us clearly what we must do to bear good fruit. It's abide in him. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Then the last sentence, for without me... He can do nothing. Third section, verses 34 through 37. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. 
But whosoever will lose shall lose his life for my sake, and the gospels the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I call this the pursuit of the cross. Having shocked Peter back into line, Christ now calls the crowds unto him, including his disciples, followers, seekers, critics, probably even skeptics, to share an amazing paradox with them. From verse 34, if you want to follow me, then deny yourself and take up my cross. In essence, Christ turned the world's definition of success completely upside down. Again, it was interesting. I thought about this paradox in my own career in business. Um, Throughout these many years, I have attended many, many seminars. I have read, seen books, read articles on all, quote, how to be successful. I would say the majority of these center on the pursuit of success narrowed down to the person. Me, my, I. Counsel in these articles, things like believe in yourself. Believe in the capacity to succeed. Think big. You can achieve whatever you want if you just set your mind to it. Or how about this one? Realize that to be an effective and successful leader, you must be willing to do whatever it takes to move up the corporate ladder. Yet Christ says as a follower of his, we must be willing to go where he goes, even if it means rejection, ridicule, persecution, self-sacrifice. Christ referred to this as taking up one's cross and following him. The command follow in the Greek means to move forward behind someone in the same direction or to come after, which literally means we want to follow in his footsteps. It was bad enough for the disciples to hear that Christ would suffer, be rejected, and die. Now Christ told them they would have to follow that same road. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. Three key commands we should all remember as a necessary condition for true discipleship. Why? Because the paradox goes one step further in verses 35 through 37 by explaining the truth of this commandment. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If I could paraphrase these verses in a simple way, it would be whoever wishes to save his physical life will surely lose his spiritual life. But whosoever turns his physical life over for my sake and the gospels will save his spiritual life. I want to look at these three commands in more detail. First, we must deny ourselves. Interesting, denying yourself is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for good, a good purpose we occasionally give up things or activities. Like, I'm not going to eat any sweets for the next seven days. That's self-denial. Denying yourself is when we totally surrender 
to Christ and purpose to obey his will. And at least for me, maybe for you too, this is daily. I mean, you've, you've seen the scriptures dying to yourself. We must deny ourselves. As one commentator said, this is not an act of desperation, but rather an act of devotion. I really like that, devotion. And it's this personal devotion that leads, secondly, to taking up the cross. This is a personal commitment to love the Lord so much that you would give up everything, even your own life, to follow and serve him. He hung on that cross so that we may have life and have it abundantly. Therefore, we can take up his cross because he took up the cross for us. And there, life, if you know God's word, life every day, you have opportunity to take up the cross. Whether it's sharing the gospel, just forgiving someone. Don't harbor a grudge. Forgive. Resisting temptation. Everyone else is doing it, but I think God's word says I can't. By putting away social media and picking up the Bible. That's a revelation. By praying when you'd rather be sleeping. By doing what God wants you to do instead of what you selfishly want to do. All kinds of ways to take up the cross for Christ. And then following him. Most of you know that I am an accountant by trade. And almost every day I look at profit and loss statements. Profit is good. Loss is not so good. That same comparison is given here in this text. For the paradox is clear. You can either profit in your earthly lifetime and gain the whole world, yet in eternity you lose your very own soul, or you can follow Christ, be with him in eternity forever and ever and ever. I thought about just saying that 25 times, ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Our minds are so finite, we can't grasp that. All we see is right here and now. I would ask each of you, especially those of you who have never put your faith and trust in the Lord, just take a minute and do a profit and loss analysis in your own mind. Which is worth more? Earthly treasures here on earth? Or the eternal treasures of heaven forever? You don't have to be an accountant to know the answer. Why would anyone, why would anyone forfeit eternal joy in the next life just to cling to the earthly pleasures of this life? My father-in-law is 92 years old. He's pretty much bedridden. He's still in his own home. Yet, he has told me this so many times over the years when we talk about this life and eternity. And it's, it's really a true statement. You will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. That's it, really true. 
Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Christ. Last verse, verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I called this the profession of the cross. I thought it was interesting as I did some research on the idea of being ashamed is raised here in this last verse primarily because of the method of crucifixion that the Romans used in executing someone. This method not only maximized suffering, but it also heaped shame upon agony. The entire process was designed to shame the victims, beginning with scourging, and then the Roman soldiers entertained themselves by taunting the person being scourged, even spitting and harassing on them, and then playing humiliating games to demean them. Such was the case with Christ in his death on the cross. And so it was that in this last verse, Christ declared a warning to all his listeners that to be ashamed of him and his words will bring serious consequences when he returns in power to destroy all evil. I ask myself, and I'll ask you, have you ever been ashamed of Christ? We're certainly living in an adulterous and sinful generation, probably more so now than ever, where I believe that in the days ahead, we who are believers will be tested more and more for our faith. Will we be ashamed? Or will we instead be bold as a light in our walk for Christ and our outward profession of his good name? We simply cannot be riding the fence and wishy-washy in our testimony for the Lord, as one commentator said, there is no room for fair-weather disciples in the kingdom of God. So as we close today, I hope you've clearly seen and been able to understand the paradoxes as we've gone through these scriptures, but more importantly, since how the commands of Christ often run so contrary to what the world would tell us. And I hope you've also seen the importance of the cross and what Christ has done for his children. I just want to leave you with five more, what I call, Paradoxes of the cross. From 1 Timothy. Christ came to earth in order that we might go to heaven. Christ was born in the flesh that we might be born of the spirit. John 1. Christ accepted poverty so that we might be made rich. 2 Corinthians 8. Christ was rejected of men that we may be adopted by God. John 1. And then Christ was put to death so that we can be made alive. Colossians 2. It is because of Christ and Christ alone that we can deny ourselves, that we can take up the cross, and that we can follow him. May we be faithful in these commands. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the exhortation to me of how important this is in my own life. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to be people who realize the importance of it, realize the priority of it, realizing that one day we'll all stand before you and be accountable for our actions. Lord, 
I pray for those today that do not know you. Lord, help them to see the difference between a life here, a pleasure, and an eternal life with you. Lord, help them to grasp the truth of the gospel. So I just pray that you would make us a people who will be bold for you as a witness for you. I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.